to the African Defence Review podcast. I'm Richard Stupart, and we're back with South Sudan today. We're connected with journalist Adrian Ohanesian once more to talk about her recent interview with the head of the dissident SPLM forces, Dr. Rick Machar. Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Thank you very much. So, first off, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the circumstances of your interview with Dr. Machar? So, where in South Sudan did it take place, and how hard was it to get there? Well, yes, I think, um, well, the coverage of, of this war that's been going on for about four months now has been, um, according to Machar, um, has been a bit one-sided um, in terms of access for the media. So um, there's really been a push, I think, within the last few weeks to bring to bring journalists in and speak, um, speak to Machar, speak to the anti-government forces um, and kind of get their perspective on the story. Um, so we were actually in Upper Nile State, um, around a town called Nasir, um, which is just east of um, the town of Malakal. Um, and so this, this area is uh, just on the border with Ethiopia. Um, so, and, and in this area of Ethiopia as well, it's predominantly a newer um, tribe as well. So you have um, a very similar, if not the same, general population in the area. Uh, so we went to visit him there um, by way of Ethiopia. And what did you discuss with me? What was the content of, of um, the interviews with him? Well, I think there's been a couple of things that have been on people's minds generally. And one is, how did, how did this conflict come, come to be? Was there a coup? Was there not a coup? And, and also what the goal is, um, because the fighting's been going on for four months now and there's been a lot of back and forth. And so I think a lot of, a lot of people have been wondering, what what exactly are Machar's intentions? Um, so most of the the questions revolved around that, and also we spoke a bit about um, this force of the White Army, um, who's been fighting alongside Machar's forces. Um, they're pro- predominantly made up of youth from Jungle State, newer youth from Jungle State. Um, so we pretty much just discussed uh, those three things mainly. Um, and what his plans were for the for the upcoming upcoming months, um, what his goals were. We've got a bunch of questions on uh, certainly the White Army and some of the upcoming plans, but it, it would be really interesting just to know what how Charles sees the events from fifteenth December, how from his perspective they played out. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the the fifteenth through the eighteenth of December was quite a hazy time for everyone um, in terms of what exactly was going on in Juba. Um, we know now that during that time there were mass um, mass killings of Norse civilians in Juba. And we also know that the violence broke out between the Tiger Brigade, which was um, Selbakir's presidential guard. And that did originally start as a conflict between Dinka and Noor um, soldiers. But then after, after these, these first... Um, few days in the initial conflict, uh, Selbakir accused Machar of a coup, of forming some sort of plan to overthrow him. Um, Machar has denied denied that on all accounts. Um, pretty much as he explained it to me, he left his home in the middle of the night in his um, galabeo, which is like a long white um long white robe so he was kind of joking as to well, if he was really going for a coup um he would have put on something rather his than his sleeping pajamas and left in his slippers in the middle of the night he would have been slightly more prepared 
Um, so literally he was just sitting in his home in Juba, which is directly across from um, J1, which is kind of the presidential compound. Um, so from his point of view, this is not something that was planned by any means. Um, but he has stated very firmly now um, that due to those those ethnic killings in Juba that happened um, between the 15th and 18th of December, that um, there's there's no place for Selvakir in government in South Sudan any longer. Um, and he, he just kept citing those those mass killings of North civilians um, in Juba as, as the reason, or the main reason that they're pushing forward um, with the war. Was Machak clear at all on who he would see replace Kier? If not him, I mean, is there another candidate that he would favor? No, he's been very, he's been very careful about answering that question because I think the obvious... The obvious answer is, well, um, I would I would step into the role of president within the country. And I think he's careful of that because of uh, these accusations of a coup. Um, but he's also just really um, pushing the, the lines that this is a response to the killings that happened in Juba. Um, whether or not that's the entire uh, reason behind behind the conflict is still unclear, um, and this also could be just a form of propaganda that he's um, preaching to his to his soldiers. Um, so, no, he's very he's very vague in terms of who he believes should step into that role if Selvakir is removed. Um, but on the other hand, he's very um, persistent that the war will not end until Selvakir has stepped down. Um, or has been removed by force. It's interesting the focus on the killings of nurse civilians in Juba after the 15th. Did he deal at all with the uh, killings of certainly Dinka civilians in other parts of the country at all? Well, I think that certainly has happened, and, and this is part of the the issue with calling this an ethnic conflict or saying that one side has been responsible for the killings because the killings have taken place in both directions. You have Dinka civilians and military, killing um, numerous civilians and military, and vice versa. So it's easy to make it look like this is a war just against your civilians. So it has, you have to be really careful when you're talking about this conflict in terms of ethnicity, because it's just very important to stress that it's happening in both directions. Um, but I think I still very firmly believe that the killings that happened in Juba um, in those first few days of the conflict were unique because there, there wasn't a war yet. There was, nobody knew what was going on. Um, so that's just a bit, um, it's a bit of a different situation where as opposed to the killings that happened after that, it's, it was happening in both directions and has been happening in both directions since those first initial killings. But I think the main thing um, about those first days in Juba is that it was government forces targeting newer civilians in the capital city um, with really no justification of, of what was going on or what the intention was behind it. And talking a little bit about the White Army now, you said that there'd been the attack on the, the UN base in Bor. How, how much does the has the White Army emerged as a thing that is actually under Machar's control, or does it seem to be kind of a, a popular militia that's acting outside of what Machar would like? Well, that was one of the questions that we um, we asked Machar when we met with him. Um, 
well, to begin with, the White Army existed prior to this conflict. This isn't, um, this isn't a force that developed in response to the conflict. However, this is a force that has grown tremendously since the outbreak of violence. So um, in terms of that, you have a very strong in numbers group of youth who are fighting um, with the newer, um, with Machar's forces. However, he was very, very clear um, to make us understand, to try to get us to understand that um, he had little to no control over the White Army and um, also had no role in arming them. Uh, so it seemed that he was trying to, to keep a strong distance um, away from away from this force, even though they've been, I would say they've been instrumental in a lot of the... Um, taking of a lot of the towns from the government forces. Um, but he, yeah, he was very persistent um, in terms of whether or not he could control these uh, these groups. And it seems he, seems he has very little control. And can you talk a little bit more about the attack that happened in Boer? Was this fairly out of the blue or has it been part of broader violence in Boer over the last few weeks? Um, Boer has changed hands a few times. Um, but this was, this was an interesting... Um, and this actually may be a case or an example of how little control Machar has over his own forces or possibly uh, the White Army as well. Again, it's unclear as to who these people were exactly that attacked the UN base in Boer, but this happened on the 17th, just uh, yesterday. Um, and from what I understand, there were a group of about, people are saying around 350, um, what looked like peaceful protesters outside of the compound. Um, and again, this is a UN base in Boer that's um, housing about 5,000 civilians um, at this point. And so, um, yeah, so you had this group of about 350 um, men outside the compound, what looked like a peaceful protest, um, suddenly storming the gates of the base um, and opening fire um, onto the civilians that that are sheltering there. Um, I read an account where even RPGs were used um, inside the compound. Um, and again, so um, the peacekeepers did their best to to fight back. Um, I think you have Indian and South Korean peacekeepers at this base. Um, so they actually did manage to repel this attack. But um, I think the numbers that I'm getting now, it's about at least 48 killed and um, around 60 wounded. Um, from this attack, and uh, I really I don't know what what the goal was with this, um, other than just to murder. And then in the early days of the split, a number of senior officers from various towns defected and often took a number of troops and heavy weapons with them. Um, particularly, this was true, I think, in Zhonglai and Unity, um, above other areas. Uh, did you see any evidence that Machaz managed to assemble officers and troops and and some of that? those that equipment into a, a sort of credible counterforce um or is it still kind of um, scattered um it's really difficult to say um the base that i was staying at with machar is very far from the um the fighting at this point um so again it's very hard to tell um i i was i was involved in a conversation about um tanks that uh machar's forces had managed to capture some tanks from from the SPLA government forces, um, but it seemed they actually 
didn't have anyone that was capable of driving a tank. So it's this, <laughs> um, you know, they're they're definitely capable of stealing weapons from from the government forces and and vice versa. Um, with every attack, I think um, the one of the goals is to just raid as many weapons stores and gather as much uh, ammunition and vehicles and food as possible. Um, but it's really difficult to tell how organized anything is. Um, communication is very difficult in South Sudan. Um, logistics are nearly impossible. Um, and you have the rainy season coming up as well. Um, so, yeah, it's just very difficult to tell how organized um, anything is. And, again, most of this fighting is happening um, in the bush. And, um, you know, people, they'll gather up their forces and, and move in on main town. But um, other than that, it's, it's quite scattered and hard, and hard to know. And is there any indication as to what Machar's next move might be? I mean, there were people who'd thought perhaps they might make a move on the oil areas, but with, for example, the coming of the rainy season, they would probably be quite limited in being able to take territory? Yes, well, he did He did mention that um, they were looking to take the oil fields um, just to have some leverage. So again, the rainy season is coming up, so we're, th- we're looking at about the rain starting maybe mid to late June, um, more or less. Um, and they did recently take, um, take Bentu um, on the 15th. Um, and this is one of the, this is Unity State, one of the largest um, oil producing states. Um, and since they've taken that, they've given the oil firms about a week to to vacate um, the state. Uh, I do know that I think oil production before the conflict was at about 260,000 barrels a day, and it's down, um, it's down about 100,000 barrels from, from there at this point. Um, and he's also, he's talked about moving in and, on other oil fields um and i think the goal of that at this point in time is just to get as much leverage as possible before um before operations kind of shut down with the rains because once the rains come um it's virtually impossible uh, in some of these areas to even to even drive um or walk uh so it'll be interesting to see how the conflict develops um in the next month my guess would be that there'll be a major push before before the end of June, and then things might quiet down. Um, but on the other hand, the rainy season also does something interesting, which is that it kind of levels the playing field. Um, so if you can't if you can't move your tanks and you can't move um, large convoys of vehicles, uh, it often it often levels that playing field because everybody um, is having the same difficulties. Uh, so it will be interesting to see what happens. But my guess is the next month we'll see a large push um, by Machar's forces. And do you think controlling the oil fields and potentially cutting off production will have a leverage effect on Kia? I mean, Kia's administration themselves turned off the taps to Sudan for a long period. Yeah, it's... I mean, at this point, I don't know what else he can do. Um, so, And it might also be one way of... Um, getting the international community to pay attention as well, getting getting China um, to care a bit more about the conflict. Um, but it also might be a dangerous move in terms of upsetting the North because the North makes 
a great deal of money on the transport of the oil from South Sudan. So all the oil in South Sudan goes through a pipeline up through Sudan, out of Port Sudan, and they they get all the transport costs. So it, it is really the only leverage point that they have, more or less. Um, but on the other hand, it could be risky in terms of um, in terms of the north and and seeing what um, honestly just how much that angers uh, angers Bashir, and that's uh, quite a um, quite a shaky economy at the moment in Khartoum. Has um, the north shown any indication as to? Yeah, what their attitude is into the, the conflict. I know Machar for a time. This is back in the the war for independence. Uh, essentially, worked for the North for a period. So, I mean, is is there a relationship there between Machar and um, Bashir, for example, that might be rekindled? There is speculation. Yes, there's a lot of speculation that the North is funneling weapons um, to Machar's forces. On the other hand, Bashir did come down to Juba. Um, and tried to kind of mediate um, and try to help him brainstorm and solve some of the issues surrounding the conflict. But it's also not unlike Bashir to play both sides, um, which I think is actually the more likely um, scenario that he's he's playing nice with Kier, but he's also playing nice with Machar. Um, and... That's, I mean, we can also say that Machar, if Machar does take the oil fields, then maybe um, Bashir will benefit. If they're working together, then it's quite possible. Um, all of a sudden, you could have an agreement between Machar and Bashir, and, and, and that would greatly benefit um, the anti-government forces. So there's a lot of... The oil fields are, are a tricky situation, and you have to remember as well, it's 98% of South Sudan's economy. Um, so... You could easily, when the oil was shut off last time, the government wasn't able to pay SPLA soldiers, um, which could also be um, kind of a uh, create mass amounts of problems for the government if they can't um, pay their army. So, yeah, it's it's a very it's a risky it's a risky <laughs> risky scenario. And uh, talking back to, to so some of the, the gains and losses in territory, in the, in the early days, uh, Uganda was decisive in intervening in helping the government retake places like Bor. Has Is Uganda still involved supporting government offensives, or have they kind of faded into the background now? As far as I know, Uganda is still involved. Um, and this is something that infuriated Machar, actually. Um, because just as at the beginning of the conflict, um, what looked like was going to happen originally was that Machar's forces, after they took Bor, were pressing down towards Juba. Um, and I had some sources in the UN say at this point, um, it looks as though Machar's forces are pretty much just going to wander into Juba and, and take the capital. Um, and I think that is the point when Uganda stepped in. Um, and Machar seemed to th- think the same thing, which was that if Uganda hadn't stepped in, they would have already... Um, been in Juba and the whole ordeal would be over. Um, so he was quite angered by this um, role of Uganda. Um, but as far as I know, they're, they're still present. Um, and they've also been a main force um, in terms of air power. Um, South Sudan doesn't really have the capability that Uganda has in terms of um, 
in terms of um, aerial bombardment and things like that, um, which if you don't have, if you don't have that power, um, as Machado's forces don't have, um, you really can't compete. Um, so they've been extremely influential on how this conflict has developed. And in the, in the interviews, did Machado give any indication as to how he sees this conflict playing out in the long term? Is it is he kind of heading towards forcing a political settlement of some kind, or is it? Despite the uncompromising language, I mean, do you, do you see a chance that he might strike a deal with Kiev ever? Um, it doesn't seem that way. Um, he didn't really have much faith in the talks that are happening in Addis Ababa, um, and I don't know really what he'll he'll do at this point. Um, I can't imagine um, him ever being accepted back into a government role um, with Kiev present. So. What, se- what he seemed to think the solution was, assuming that the peace talks aren't going to go anywhere, um, was that it, it would need to be by by force or um, Slavikir would need to willingly step down, um, which he didn't, he didn't really seem convinced that would happen. Um, so there was definitely mention of going, taking Juba by force and, um, and removing Slavikir from power. You mentioned as well the meeting had happened close to the border and that there's communities there that sort of share share ties. Is there any evidence that Ethiopia's involved or in any way, I mean, affected or intervening in what's happening? Um, not that I could tell. Um, I traveled by road all the way from um, Addis to Gambella and then crossed the border into South Sudan. Um, and I think Ethiopia is being very, very cautious Um they don't want to be playing a military role, um, from what I could understand. They um, at some of the checkpoints they went through and searched the bags, making sure that nobody had, nobody going into South Sudan had any sort of um, Ethiopian uniforms. Um, so there seems they're being very very cautious around that. Um, I mean, obviously Ethiopia is playing a bit of a role because they are they're taking in. I think they have almost a hundred thousand. Uh, refugees, South Sudanese refugees at this point, um, and they're also hosting um, the peace talks. Uh, so they're playing a role in that way, but militarily, um, I think they're trying to keep quite a distance from what's happening. And so what do you think going forward, if, if for the next month or so, are likely to be um, key developments, or what are, what are the issues to watch? I mean, you said, for example, there's likely to be a push ahead of the rainy season. Um, is there anything else that you think you'd would be worth highlighting? Um, besides this push for the oil fields, um, I'm not really sure what else what else they can do at this point. Um, they're still they could still easily, um, if they wanted to, probably try to retake Bor, maybe try to retake Malakal. Um, just pushing on any of these large larger towns in the oil fields, I think, is is um, pretty much the only choice they have at this point, um, unless. Um, they can really move in on the capital, which I think would be would be very difficult. Um, so those seem to be the only only real solutions, and there really doesn't seem to be any any faith in the peace talks um, or any belief that there's going to be a resolution um, on paper. So um, yeah, I really I got the impression while I was there that this is this is just the beginning, and um, this this could continue for for quite some time. <laughs> 